Um, this morning we're talking about prayer. Sorry. And uh, let's just take a look real quickly um, about w- what we've been talking about this semester, which is the grand narrative of, uh, of creation of the Bible. What we've been going through is the story of Jesus and the, the places where Jesus appears in the Old Testament, the places where he appears in the Old Testament, and then his ministry coming after he has appeared in the flesh. And so what we saw is before the foundations of the world, we saw that Jesus was the force of creation that was at work before the beginning of the world. He was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and uh, the angel, word angel appears like 214 times. A third of those refer to Jesus in the Old Testament. He's all over the place. He was with Abraham um, in the wilderness. He came and he told him that he was going to have a son. And then he came and he stopped him from sacrificing his son on the altar. He wrestled with Jacob in the wilderness. He was the burning bush that spoke to Moses. He appeared to Joshua before the army of the Lord went into Canaan. He spoke to King David and he prophet Isaiah. And he protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames and the fiery furnace. And he stopped the mouths of the lions from devouring Daniel in the lion's den. All of these things Jesus did as the preeminent son of God before he became flesh. He did this in his power and in his glory. And then, as we saw last week, he emptied himself of all of that glory and all of that power, and he became the illegitimate son of a poor construction worker in the poorest region of the smallest province in the Roman Empire. This incredibly insignificant, seemingly insignificant place in history. But as we know, what he did, he shaped history forever after. So much so that we even the secular world bases their dating system on his birth death, on his death. He's incredibly influential, despite that humble beginning. And he started his earthly ministry, and he went into the, he was baptized, he went into the wilderness for 40 days, he came out, he began to teach. And then after he came out of the wilderness, he would go into the synagogues, he would go onto the countryside, and he would teach. He would go around to villages, and he would sit down, and he would say various things. And most of those are recorded in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And we're going to look at prayer, what he said about prayer, in that passage this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bible, you have a Bible with you. Um, that is Matthew 6, verse 7 through 14. Uh, sorry, six, uh, 5 through 14. Many of us, I'm sure, are going to recognize this passage. It's very famous. Uh, If you grew up in the church, you probably had to memorize it as a child. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, And prayer is something that everybody knows how to do, right? All Christians are inherently masters at prayer, right? Or do we have a lot of questions? We have a lot of misunderstandings about prayer, things that we don't know. So we're going to look at what Jesus talked about prayer this morning. So in Matthew 6, verse 5, he said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, and they may, that they may be seen by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. For they think that they are heard by their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In this short passage, Jesus said a lot about prayer. So we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to start uh, in verse 5 where Jesus started. Now, a little bit about Jesus' culture and the time frame. There were, at the time, the rulers of his country were the religious elite. He lived in a theocracy where the religion dictated what culture and behavior and laws were in the country. So the religious elite were those people that he was talking about, and he called them hypocrites. He called them actors. He called them fakes and frauds. Because what they would do, they would go out in public and in the open, and they would pray their private prayers out in the open, out in public. And the implication here is that they would only pray their private prayers out in public. They wouldn't pray in private. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what is he telling us here? He's telling us that we need to be genuine when we pray. Because the hypocrites, their reward that they were seeking was not that their prayers would be answered. The reward that they were seeking was that everyone would see them and look at them and say, oh, what a righteous person that is. What a good person that is. I wish I could be like that guy. I wish I could pray like him. I wish I could live like him. I wish I didn't sin as much like he doesn't sin. That's what they were looking for. They weren't praying that God would help them. They weren't praying that God would forgive them. And if they did, they would pray something insignificant, like, oh, I missed, I missed a couple of pennies off of my tithe last week. I didn't calculate it right, God. Please forgive me. Those insignificant things are the things that they would ask forgiveness for. But what they ignored was the compassion that God was, had commanded them to show their fellow human beings. They would go into the corners. There's a, sto- there's a story uh, that Jesus told as a parable um, about two men who, would, uh, who went into the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, which is with this religious, religious elite guy, and the other was a tax collector. The tax collectors were corrupt, very corrupt. Uh, what they would do is they would, they would uh, have the tax that they were supposed to collect from the government, but they would collect more than that and line their pockets. And everyone knew that they did this. 
So these two guys went into the temple. And the Pharisee, the religious elite, saw the tax collector and prayed, Oh God, thank you that I'm not like that guy. He pointed at him. And the tax collector was sitting there praying, pleading with God, God, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus confronts them here and tells all the people, don't pray like that. Don't pray loud and exorbitant prayers so that people will look at you and see how righteous you are. In contrast, he tells us to pray in private because God sees us. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So just because we're in private where no one else can see us doesn't mean that God can't see us. In fact, it means just the opposite because God can see everything. He's everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. We can't even get away from his presence. Because it's not just his eyes that see us when we pray. It's his very presence is there with us. No matter if we're in a good place, if we're, if we're you know, riding high and, and doing well in life, or if we're in the depths of lowest lows and depression, God is there. God sees us and God hears us. It doesn't matter who is around to hear our prayers because God hears us and he is the one that we're talking to. Because of that, we need to be genuine when we talk to him. Because he's the only one that we're looking to see. Now, I want to make two points um, about this. Clarifications. Because we don't just pray in private. We pray in public. We did it twice already this morning, and we're going to do it two or three times more before we close. We don't just pray in private. We do pray in public. But there's two things that separate the way that we pray in public from the way that the Pharisees were praying in public. The first is our audience. When we pray openly in church, we don't and shouldn't pray for the benefit of the people that are hearing us. Now, I know that there's probably some people who do. I know that there's probably somewhere people who pray prayers so that people would look at them and see how righteous they were and how good of a prayer they were. But that shouldn't be our motivation. In fact, the motivation should be that our prayers would be corporate prayers. That everyone in the audience who is listening should be praying along with the person who's praying in public. So that our, all of our voices are of one mind talking to God, petitioning God about this or praising God for that and his goodness. That's what is recorded in Acts in several places. The first century church would gather and pray like this. And the second thing is our focus. When we pray in church, the focus of our prayers should be different than the focus of our prayers in private. It would be a really odd thing for me to stand up here in church and pray personally for my wife and for my coworkers by name 
and for all the things that I need and for all the things that I'm struggling with, it would be very odd if I was standing, and awkward for everyone here, if I was standing up here praying those things in public. It would be really weird. So the focus of our prayers is different. The focus of our prayers should be the public worship of God, the public adoration of God, the public declaration of His goodness. It should be to focus us before we go out and serve. It should be, it should be to glorify God. So these are the two things that really separate our public prayer from the public prayer that he's talking about. Like I said, I think that the, the difference is they would only pray in public. If you pray, you should pray in private. We should all be praying in private. When we pray in public, we sh- our focus should be on God and not on the people around us. So the second thing that Jesus tells us, we can find in verse 7 and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We should be genuine before God because He already knows what we need. He already knows what we need because, as we discussed, He is everywhere. He sees everything. But Jesus in this passage, he's confronting another group of people that were going around in Israel. Those were the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who were there, the Greeks and the Phoenician traders, the people that weren't Jewish who were around the Jewish community. And when they would pray to their gods, they would you know, heap up incantations and say their names and make promises to them and vows in the hopes that that god or goddess would bless them in some way. Occasionally, those people would convert to Judaism. And when they did that, they would often bring those practices into the temple. They would bring those practices with them. And they would pray to God. They would use that same mentality of, oh, God, do this for me because I'm going to sacrifice this to you. It's a, it was a this-for-that relationship. But that's not the God of the Bible. Something else they would do is they would heap up empty phrases. And people today still do this. Um, I've done it myself many times. And, and if you've been to any church, you've probably heard one or two of these things. People will pray these jargon prayers like, Oh, God, bless this fellowship of gathering of people. God, put a protection of, a hedge of protection around us. God, uh, give us traveling mercies as we drive. Now, those are good things to pray. But when we use those jargon phrases, we're not really saying what we mean. And when we ask for traveling mercies, we're asking that God would protect us as we're driving to a far location, that he would protect us and help us to not get into a wreck. You know, when, when we're asking for a hedge of protection around us, like if we're going out witnessing with Kevin on campus, we're, we're asking that God would help us and strengthen us in that time. You know, 
these empty phrases are more or less meaningless. So we should say what we mean. We, we should say what we mean because God hears us and He knows what we need before we even ask. So, before you even ask God for a hedge of protection, I mean, what you might pray is, God, you know what happened to me at work last week. And God, I just pray that as I go into work today, you would strengthen me in case that happens again and uh, just insulate me from that situation. God, I pray that you would build me up when I go out sharing on campus, that you would strengthen me and give me boldness. John 10.14 tells us that God knows us. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And then again, later on in verse 27-28, he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Psalms also speak to this truth. In, one, in Psalm 139, verse 14 and 16, he sa- the psalmist says, Lord, I praise you, or I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw the unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. So God knows you. So when you pray, you don't have to explain the situation to him. You don't have to use a whole bunch of words because he's no, he knows you and he's with you. He knows what you need. He knows if you're hungry. He knows if you're sad. He knows if you are praying for your friend's salvation. So what Jesus says, is he says pray like this. In verse 9. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now this is well known as the Lord's Prayer. And many of us were made to memorize it as children. Uh, and it's a good thing that our parents did make us memorize it as children. Because it gives us not a prayer to recite. Because that would be exactly what he just said was wrong with prayer. What he said was, pray in this way. Pray for these things. Pray like this. And so he gives us five things that we're to pray for in this passage. The first one that I want to look at is in verse 9. It's the very first thing he says. Our Father who art in heaven. It's his address. This is very different from Jesus calling God his Father himself and saying, my Father has given my sheep to me, like we just read. This is very different. 
Because what he's saying is God's not just his father, he's our father too. Anyone who calls on his name for salvation, they get God as a father too. As evangelicals, this is a very common thing that we're taught. Uh, we hear this, this language all the time, that God is our father, we are to look at God as our father. But I think we've lost some of the, the power of that statement. Because this is God, this is Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is Jehovah Jireh. This is Elohim. This is the God who created the universe. This is the God who did wonderful miracles in the nation of Israel. This is the, one, this is the God who parted the Red Sea, who led them through the wilderness with a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of, or a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is powerful. God is mighty. And we, don't, we need to not forget that when we address him as father. But we do need to address him as father because that's the relationship that we have with him. God is not far away. Jeremiah 23, 23 shows us that God is close by. He says, I am a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. God isn't the divine watchmaker of uh, Benjamin Franklin who made a clock or made the universe and set it up on a shelf and just watches it go and doesn't interact with it. God is with us and interacting with us. And he's here. God uh, interacts with us. He is intimate with us. That relationship of a father to a son or a father to a daughter is this relationship of closeness, this relationship of access. So we have access to the Father through Christ. He is not only the God of the Old Testament, but He is with us. And He hears us and He loves us. It's our orientation to Him. But we shouldn't forget that He is holy which is the second part of verse 9. Jesus says, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. I think that hallowed is kind of a word that we don't use anymore. I don't know. When's the last time anybody used the word hallowed? Okay, yeah, I didn't think so. I haven't used it either. Um, we, we don't even think about it, but it's a form of the word Holy. And uh, we just kind of read over it because we don't really know what it means. But what Jesus is saying here is he's praying that God would keep his name holy in our eyes. He's praying that we wouldn't only view him as father, but that we would view him as holy and completely unworldly, completely set apart completely separate from sin, completely perfect. And that prayer, let your name be kept holy, is almost kind of a joke in our culture. I mean, when, when's the last time you went a day without hearing someone utter the phrase, oh my God? Been a long time for me. The, the idea that we should keep God's name separate and set apart is 
just completely out of our minds. And for most of us, and myself included, it doesn't really even bother me anymore when I hear that. But it should. We should pray that God's name be kept holy in our eyes so that it does bother us when people say that. So it does bother us when we hear it. So it bothers us when we say it accidentally ourselves. Because it matters. Because God is holy. He is the creator of the universe. Something that uh, I think as evangelicals we're, we're, we kind of like to keep God at a distance. We, we like this pocket-sized Jesus, this safe um, God that we can carry around with us everywhere we go and you know, he, he wants, he loves us and he protects us and he, he comforts us. But we don't see him as the powerful being that he is. Now, C.S. Lewis's, Lewis's theology might be a little shaky uh, in certain areas, but I love what he said in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, the kids uh, in the story, they went to meet Aslan for the first time with the beavers. And uh, the one, I don't remember which kid it was, but one of them asked, you know, the beaver, is Aslan safe? He's a lion. We're going to be in a tent with him. Is he safe? And the beaver says, well, well, no, he's not safe. He's a lion. He's not safe, but he's good. And that's what we need to understand about God. He is powerful. He is almighty. He is everything, but he's good. Psalm 113 says, Praise the Lord. Uh, praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, let the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord is high and above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He rises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine if we saw God this way? Can you imagine if we saw God this way instead of the pocket-sized safe Jesus with a dove on his shoulder and a lamb? If we saw him as the God of the universe, what would our lives be like? So Jesus told us to pray for that. Pray that we would see him that way. The third thing that Jesus told us to pray for is in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is a very biblical concept, and the apostles taught a lot about this in the books of the New Testament. Our will being aligned to God's will. Now, God is sovereign, God is almighty, so... His will is going to be done anyway, right? Whether we want it to or not. So why does he tell us to pray that God's will should be done? I think he tells us that so that his desires and our desires would line up. I've used this illustration before. Um, anybody seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean? 
Remember the compass that Jack had that pointed to his most, his deepest desire? Well, his problem was that his deepest desire kept on changing, and so the compass just went haywire. Every one of us has that kind of a compass in our hearts. We have something that points to our deepest desire. What we need to do is we need to point that compass towards Christ, towards his will. That's what we're praying for here. That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we would not only want God's will for the world, but that we would want God's will for our lives as well. For instance, how many of you guys that aren't married or engaged want to be married someday? Ready? Any married people want to be married? Good. Eh, you know. That desire to be married is a good desire. That is a good desire that God has put into us. So what does it look like for our will to line up with God's will in that desire? Where are you going to look for a spouse if your will is lined up with his will? You're probably not going to look for a spouse in the club downtown at 1 o'clock in the morning. You're probably going to not look for, your, for that spouse, um, I don't know, in any of, any of the clubs downtown. <laughs> I didn't really think that one through, sorry. <laughs> but what if you looked for a spouse in an area where you're serving, an area of ministry that you feel like God has given you a heart for? What if it's the children's ministry? What if it's the greeting team? What if it's a hospitality area? What if it's sharing your testimony with Kevin? If we're looking for a spouse whose desires line up with ours to serve God, our will is going to line up with God's will because we're going to be looking for a partner in ministry, not someone to keep us company. And that is going to be a much, much more satisfying marriage. Look at James Four thirteen through 15. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, I will go into such or such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you know not what tomorrow may bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What you ought to say is, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, the Apostle James is saying the same thing here, although his example is a little bit more morbid. What he's saying is we don't know the future. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, let alone a year from now, let alone 10 years from now. We don't know that the school isn't going to change the requirements for our grad school that we want to get into, so the major that you're in is not going to put you on track. We don't know that we're going to go and be a lawyer. We don't know that we're going to go and be a doctor. We don't know that we're going to go and be a veterinarian. What we do know is that God's will for our lives will happen. And we should pray that our will lines up with God's will and say, you know what, if God wills for me to be a, doc- to be a, to be a doctor, you know, I want to go to med school and I want to be a doctor. If God wills for me to be a lawyer, I want to go and be a lawyer. 
That way, our will will line up with God's will. A fourth thing that Jesus tells us to pray for is something that not very many of us struggle with in our prayer lives. He says, give us this day, in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're praying for our needs. Jesus tells us to pray for what we need. He tells us to ask for what we need. Even though he already knows what we need, he still wants us to ask for it. But that need goes beyond just the stuff that we need to survive the day, the bread that we need to get through the day. That need continues and carries over uh, to forgive us our debts as we forgive those, forgive our debtors. Now, God's not in the business of loaning money. So the debt that we have with him is not something that we can pay back with any amount of cash. The debt that we have is our sin. He's asking us to pray that God would forgive our sins. And he says, pray that, you would, God would for, that, pray that God would forgive you your sins just like you've forgiven the person who sinned against you. That's kind of a sobering thought. So if we're praying that God forgives us like I forgive the guy that cut me off last week, I don't know. I think I've forgotten more of the people that I have to forgive than I actually remember. God gives us that, that sober warning in the, verses, in the verses after verse 13. Uh, immediately following this passage, he says uh, in verse 14, if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive you your trespass. Gosh, that's why it's so important for us to pray for this forgiving heart. Because we're being transformed in the image of Christ. That's what we're doing in our Christian walk. And as we are transformed into the image of Christ, we do get more forgiving. So if you're not a very forgiving person right now, don't worry. As you become a Christian, as you grow in your faith, as you grow in your walk, it'll get better. As you become more like Christ, you'll be a more forgiving person. You'll be a more accepting person. You'll be a, more, you'll be a person that more aligns yourself with God's will. We need this forgiveness just as much as we need food. That's, that's the implication of what he's saying here. Because he lumps these two together. For the, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. He lumps those together. He's equating those two. And so we should pray just like we pray for our food. Now the last thing that God tells us, Jesus tells us to pray for is found in verse 13. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He tells us that God, to pray that God would lead us not into temptation. I think that's a little odd way of saying it. But what he's, what he's saying is, pray that God would lead us out of temptation. Because we know from the rest of Scripture that God doesn't tempt us. 
Look at James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Just about every translation of verse 13 is translated this way. Uh, But the idea of James is that God would lead us out of temptation. He's going to provide us a way out. And so we need to pray for that when we're tempted. We need to pray that before we're even tempted, that when we are tempted, he would lead us out of temptation, and especially in the moment, because he will provide a way out. The sinful desires come from within us. Now, some of our translations are going to say, uh, from the, uh, deliver us from the evil one. Now, that translation is found in the, um, what's called the dynamic translations, which is not a word-for-word translation. It's the translators trying to get at the thought of what the actual text is saying. And I think that they did that wrong in this one. Most of it they get right. But I don't think that this is talking about the devil. I don't think that this is talking about the evil one. I think that this is talking about the evil that's within us. That God would deliver us from the evil that's inside of all of our hearts. Look at what Titus said in Titus 3 through 5. Actually, Luke, uh, Paul said to Titus in Titus 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So before we followed Christ, this evil was already inside of us. It was already at work. We didn't need someone to come along and tempt us to do it. Our own desires were to do it anyway. And before Christ, we did that willingly, not even knowing. So what God says in Titus is that Jesus is the way out of that temptation. Jesus is the way out of that evil, that life of hating people and being hated by other people, that life of of passing our days in malice and envy. Jesus is the way out of that. The work of the Holy Spirit through or the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit is the work of regeneration, and that's becoming more Christ-like. By that process, the evil within us slowly dies, 
as we nail it to the cross. Jesus says, take up your crosses and carry them daily. What does that mean except to take up that task of putting sin to death within yourself every day? To not be complacent about it. To not stop praying for it. To not let it slip our minds. This passage shows that he himself is the answer to that prayer. That he is the one who does the regeneration. So we need to be genuine when we talk to God. Because he sees us and he knows us. We need to pray for these things that God has told, that Jesus told us in this prayer. We need to pray for us to see God as a father. We need to pray for God, God's name to be glorified in our lives and for us to keep it holy, keep it separate, and keep it powerful in our minds. We need to pray that God would deliver us from sin. We need to pray that God would Excuse me. We need to pray that God would give us what we need and forgive us. We need to pray that God would regenerate us. Now, something else that we've been doing uh, over the past of the semester is we've been going through the Jesus Storybook Bible along with the Sermons of the Grand Narrative. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a paraphrased version of the translation of the Bible, it's a children's storybook. Um, with paraphrases of all the stories of, of the Bible that talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. And so I want to read what it says about this passage. So one day, Jesus taught people how to pray. He said, when you pray, don't pray like those extra super holy people. Think about what they say they think that, they say, that if they say a lot of words, God will hear them. But it's not because you're so clever or so good or so important that God will listen to you. God listens to you because he loves you. Did you know that God is always listening to you? Did you know that God can hear the quietest whisper deep inside your heart, even before you started to say it? Because God knows exactly what you need before you ask him. Jesus told them. You see, God can't just God just can't wait to give you all that you need. So you don't need to use long words or special words. You don't need to have a special voice to pray. Just have to talk. So when you pray, pray in your normal voice just like when you're talking to someone you love very much. You see, Jesus was showing the people that God would always love them with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So when, so they didn't need to hide anymore or be afraid or ashamed. They could stop running away from God and they could run to him instead. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this word, Father. Thank you for this word on prayer. Thank you for regenerating our hearts. God, thank you 
for your holiness. God, help us to keep this holiness in our minds, to keep this picture of you as our Holy Father who is separated and set apart and above all the foundations of the world. God, help us to forgive one another. Help us to show each other mercy. God, forgive us of our sins. God, I pray that you would do all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us on the cross, who lived for us and taught us. God, I pray that you would keep these things in our minds and that you would be with us as we go out. Amen.